What's the question? The question is, what are you doing with these things? I mean, so far I've just seen them online. They're just, they're online. You can get them in iTunes. They're a, as a podcast, they download automatically every week. And, you know, that's about it. It's a weekly, and you've heard some of them, right? Uh, I listened a little bit. I didn't listen to much. Okay, yeah. yeah. So good interviews. Yeah. So it's just, it's just me talking openly with people about their lives and Somehow, if I could get them, the theory is if you get them to open up, then you play some of their music. I don't know if you listen to a whole interview, but also pieces yeah. get played in their entirety in it, that it would somehow make the music make sense too. Because okay. oh, it's like, oh, of course, of course, Martin would write a piece like that. I just heard right. his talk about him and his temperament for an hour and also kind of like maybe some friction he has with the outside world that bothers him and how he deals with that personally. And that would somehow make the music make sense. Is like it, but there doesn't around. seem to be a commercial side to this that I could see. You know, do you, do you make money? No, 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 no. And I don't think I like, that's not the plan. Uh-huh. And these are actually more therapeutic for me than anything else. <laughs> but I mean that okay. like in, in a real, right. yeah, in a real way. Like, uh, that's it, so that's basically, okay, well, what I'll let about. you, I'll let you run this the way you like. And it's, We'll start it, and at some point, we'll stop, I guess, right? Yeah, well, we started now. Oh, we've already started? Yeah, we've already started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is happening at okay. yeah, at this uh, at this moment. So okay. how are you? How have you been? I've been good. Uh, I'm just now off on sabbatical for the next uh, six to eight months. I mean, six months and then the summer, which happens to me every four years or so. And this is four and a half. So I'm feeling uh, this kind of... Uh, Freedom from having to teach, which is really a nice thing. And, um, you know, I'm working on an opera, which I, I just decided I, I would do that. And I've done it. I'm but doing you, it. But you have any, you just decided out of nowhere, I'm going to write an opera. I decided I was going to write an opera. Yeah. I felt like I could do it. I felt like I've written every kind of other theater kind of work from, uh, cantata-like things to dramatic, uh, radio play things to, pieces of music that uh, that accompany films or that have something to do with films to actual film scores. And I felt that I could do it and I wanted to do it. So I decided to do it. Are you actually at the level where you can say, I'm going to write an opera and then people just go around you, hear that you're writing an opera and they're like, oh, we have to make this happen. Martin's uh, writing an opera. Most, I mean, it's it's somewhere in there. I mean, it's actually, that's the pleasure of it is that, well, one of the things I did to make sure that people would, think uh, positively about it is that I had been in contact with uh, Sandy McClatchy. Uh, J.D. McClatchy is a you know, really well-known librettist. And uh, he, when he speaks, uh, uh, foundations tremble and uh, you know, the, the Met pays attention and all sorts of other things happen. I mean, for example, he just did the uh, English language version of a reduced Barber of Seville for the Met. So he, he produced the text for that in English, a singable translation. And he worked with, uh, with, uh, Ned Warham on Our Town. And he, you know, he's a local guy. He teaches at Yale. He's head of the, he writes for the Yale Review. He's a really good literary guy. And so he and I had a discussion about, about this. I said, I wanted an opera. And we talked about what would be, um, might make sense as a libretto. And 
we batted it around and eventually I came up with uh, with the idea and he agreed to be the librettist and make the adaptation. So that was a big break. And once he was on board, I got another guy, David Chambers, who works in theater, also teaches at the drama school a couple of days a week. He will be, he will be the director. And it began to, it was a little bit like a snowball. You know, all start kind of snow started gathering around this little pebble and uh, started rolling down the hill. So how far is it down the hill? And how well, big is it's, the ball? Yeah, it's scheduled. I mean, we are going to do it now uh, on the 19th and 20th of June at the uh, New Haven Festival of Arts and Ideas. It's a, it's That's a, soon. Yeah. So is it done? No, it's not done, no. No, I know everybody asks me, and I, I know that people freak out about this, but actually I'm, I'm, I'm about, I would say, almost halfway done with the actual score. Wow. Wait, I don't have to, write the, I have to write the instrumentation, but the piano score is almost halfway done. <laughs> How are you going to get that? Thank God you're on sabbatical. Yeah, well, that was the point. The idea was to plan it out in such a way that the, the major writing would take place during the sabbatical. But the fact is, I don't know how you work, but when I've started something, when I'm committed to the opening, and the opening has worked for me, then things start to flow and move positively in a direction, and it's not a problem. When you me. mean like opening, like committed to the day it happening? No, or you mean no, like I mean beginning? when you start a piece. You know, when you, when you, for me, the hardest thing is gathering the ideas and starting up and making sure every, all my ducks are in a row and, you know, sort of I have a fairly good grasp of the scope and character of what I want to do. Until I get that, uh, I could spend a lot of time spinning my wheels. But once I have that, I can move ahead pretty quickly. And you're doing it in a way that you're really you're starting out from a piano score mm-hmm. then you then I'm going to orchestrate, orchestrate it, it. Yeah. yeah but it's a chamber opera so there's only five characters and there's only six musicians so it's not this is not the ring cycle it's small and it only will last a little over an hour and there's already about 20 25 minutes written now i i don't know how other people work i really can't say but since i've i've had to work on film scores where directors will say, you know, we want you for this film, and then they don't get back to you, and they don't get back to you, and they don't get back to you, and then they get back to you and say, well, you got two weeks to do, you know, an hour score. Film directors, when that much money is on the line, they procrastinate like that. Well, it's not that they're procrastinating. It's that you're the last thing they think about. They have a lot of other things that they want to think about, and they don't want to think about you. And they have temp music that they're using, and they, they just let it go. And they think that you can come up with this on the spot. And you have to. And you do it. See, for me, in my mind, movies are in such a way that the machinery is so big that, okay, maybe they don't want to think about you. But maybe they have a guy that's in charge of thinking about you. You know, uh-huh. there's like so many middlemen that... Well, yeah, you're, you you're, thinking of, you're thinking correctly about what a Hollywood production would be like. But what I'm talking about are documentaries where you're working pretty directly with the director and the producer and that's it. There is not anybody else to get involved with so there's a small group of people and yeah they they they're very busy you know cu- editing cutting they have temporary music they're cutting to or they're thinking about they tell you sort of what they want but then maybe like a month before you don't really want to write music for them anyway until they've got a pretty much a locked picture or a fine cut because if you start writing music to their rough cuts you're going to throw out a lot of music. It's really, you're going to do things two and three times over that you could have only done once if they'd been finished properly. Are these, are those two things separated in your head? Like movie score, opera, this is part of the commercial world. People are going to see this. It's going to make money. I'm going to get, you know, however much cut or revenue or whatever the deal is. Like that is a business venture and this is an artistic venture. Like, 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that issue arises for people, particularly who are in the commercial film world, where the film has to make money and it has to sell, you know, even it sells products or things like that that go along with it. Like, that's part of it. But every film I've done, with one exception, has been a documentary film. And documentaries really don't have that kind of market, and they don't think of it that way. And they also are much more open to a more experimental kind of music than, than, than conventional Hollywood movies. Although there are plenty of conventional Hollywood movies that have wonderful, uh, imaginative and pretty radical scores. But they have a commercial thing. They have to sell the movie. It has to make back a lot of money. Documentaries don't, they're usually paid for by foundations or grants or by gifts and as long as they get their nut, you know, they recoup what they have. They'll make a little money. Everybody will make a little money. I've made a little money. But it's not about that. It, and so there doesn't have to be a tremendous distance for me between thinking about an opera and thinking about a movie. You know, and as I've gone on in, in, the, in my writing, the distance between what I think of as abstract music and film music is almost collapsed. I mean, I can do either without making much of a change or, or changing my head in any way. Why? Because they resemble each other more and more, I would say. I mean, uh, the music, it's, it, it happens, for example, in, in a good deal of my music that there may be, there might be a song or some paradistic rendering of some more conventional kind of thing. It, it will happen. I mean, just for an example, in, in For the Sexes, the Gates of Paradise, uh, this is a 31-minute setting of the William Blake poem with images that, that uh, is for solo piano and these images. Uh, toward the end of that, that 30 minutes, about minute 27, the pianist has to sing. The pianist has been speaking, but the, then the pianist has to sing, and the pianist sings a, literally a song that I wrote. It's a song. But both kind of serve different functions, right? I mean, one is something that it's not supposed to get all of your attention for like the documentary is for lack of a better term you're accompanying something the at best the attention is divided between oh this music is nice and whatever images are happening fit to that you have to i mean that's something that you have to be aware of when you're writing it when you're writing a piece of chamber music it's just about the sounds that you're making presumably if it's not also a other type of collaboration, like a cantata or something like that, or if there's a librettist that's also trying to get their point through. So how does that not affect the process in a large way? You know, It, it affects it, but perhaps less than you would think. I mean, there are certain... Uh, I remember somebody, when I first started writing music for the movies, which I did from the very outset of my career, by the way. I did it as a graduate student at Stanford. Okay. I did graduate when I, I, I met some of the people that I worked with my whole life who were young graduate students in documentary filmmaking and wrote music for them so you're like in my late, 20s, okay. early yeah, yeah. 20s. Early 20s. Well, I entered graduate school at 20. I, I started my master's degree at Stanford at the age of 20. Okay. I was very young. Uh, and so when I was, when I was there, I was already doing film music for, for various things. And it became very evident that there's certain kinds of, kinds of music that are not going to work in a film or where it would be unnecessary to provide that, uh, you know, surplus value in a Marxian sense to that score. You would, you, you don't need it. You don't need a lot of modulation. You don't need a lot of counterpoint. Those things don't have to happen in most film scores because, as you say, you know, that's paying attention to the music is not the primary thing from some parts of the movie. 
So then the question is, what kind of music do you need to do? And I find that I managed to smuggle in a lot of counterpoint and I don't hide it. And I tend to work on projects where the directors that I work with are very open to music of a greater density. It has to come down. There's no question. It can't always be up, but it, it has to come down in some places. It's, it's more a matter of degree, I think, than of kind, I guess I'd like to say. I don't see them as so different in kind. For example, let me just give you an example. If you think about an opera, you have to serve the drama. When Mozart writes an opera, he writes as beautiful music as he's ever written, but everything that he does there is serves the ongoing drama, the characterization of the principal actors and their roles and so on. That's not something he would have to think about when he's writing uh, you know, you know, a symphony or a string quartet. So, yeah, it's a different it's different in some ways, but it's you can bring a similar skill set to bear on both of these issues. Okay, so so you do a bunch of things. Which one do you think you get to be the most indulgent in your own mannerisms? That's interesting. I I mean, it's not a way I would frame it. I have a lot of different tastes. So sometimes I can I can try them and as you would say, indulge them. In other places they're inappropriate. They don't really fit. So you keep them aside. You don't actually use them. But uh, be that as it may, I mean, I think that's, I think, you know, I have a view of composition, which is simultaneously that it's a, that it's a higher calling of artistic sensibility and, you know, coming to grips with significant existential matters or you know, musical experimentation, sonic experimentation. I do have that part, but I also have a part of me that, which also feels that music is, and a composer is a profession in which you may be called upon to do something and you should be able to do it. I mean, it's like, I'm not, I don't merely imagine the clothes in an imaginative way for some show somewhere, but I actually have to make sure they fit the model who has to wear the clothes. In other words, it's, there's a, there are technical and practical features which I take great pleasure in. Do you think that that's specifically an American trait? Like the idea of almost fitting into commerce in a way? You know, I mean, uh, we, are, we, are, we are bumping up here against uh, what, I perce- what I'm perceiving from you in a way, which is a, which is a kind of sensibility which has been really schooled in, the, in a particularly uh, Central European concept well, of separation of commerce and art in yeah, this way. But it's, I don't see it that way. Well, actually, okay, so let me say something. Like, neither, neither do I. This is actually what I wanted to talk about. Okay. You. Because when you knew me, yeah. like, four and a half years ago, yeah. like, I think I was a lot like that. Yeah. But once I went over there... yeah. And I kind of saw how that sausage got made. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is kind of just as icky. It's like it was a case for the the grass is always greener for me. Yeah, sure. So now I'm actually much, much, much more like you. I think, I mean, not stylistically, but that kind of, it's not a matter of like good and bad for me. No, and and actually, if you think about it, Dan, I mean, just just again, if we, we apply a little bit of historical perspective to this, the concept that music should be completely independent of commerce in that way or whatever that is conceived of to be. And I'm making square quotes in the air for your listeners to think about. Uh, You know, it's really a a modernist feature of 20th century music in particular. Uh, Before that, it didn't really exist. I mean, you know, Brahms wasn't ashamed to write Liebeslieder waltzes, you know, and Dvorak wrote 
you know, you know the 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 dances, the Slovakian dances, and uh, you know, you know, opera itself has always been a mixed form in that way. Verdi didn't imagine he he was doing this for 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 nothing. He he hoped it would be a great success in Paris. He changed things to suit the audiences in Paris and suit the audiences in Milan and. I mean, it only toward the end of the century, of the preceding century, do you have uh, composers particularly for whom art becomes a kind of sacred, purely sacred calling. Yeah, yeah. And it's this kind of s- extremely subsidized culture that allows that bubble for them to actually have that thought. And part of me wants to burst their bubble so much when they, oh, sure. when they talk about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I lived in Europe too, so I That's know. That's what I wanted I to ask you yeah. about. Well, so did you experience, like, okay, so having that sensitivity and kind of philosophy that you had back when you were in Stanford, did you come across that friction when you were there? No, You know, it's funny uh, because, um, you know, because I was a student in California uh, as a graduate student, and I was exposed to a very peculiar, in some ways, given what the American uh, kind of academic establishment was like in my day, I was in, in touch with a very strange collection of individuals, which, you know, including John Chowning and the, the, the development of computer music, which, uh, you know, was both highly experimental and was subsidized in some sense by the army, you know, and the, the defense department helped pay for that research. Oh, the Cold and, War. <laughs> as, well, yeah, and the, actually the hot war in Vietnam, too. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the U.S. military establishment was pouring money into computer research in order to to improve their ability to bomb the hell out of Vietnam. And some of that money fell off the truck and was picked up by people like Chowning and others who were doing much more wonderful and useful human things. But nevertheless, that was that that that, you know, nobody was under any illusions about where that money came from. And then, of course, the fact that the that the development of uh, frequency modulation as a practical tool became the basis of these Yamaha DX7s and all these other pieces of synthesizers and keyboard synthesizers in particular, that that commercial relationship helped to fund karma, the CCRMA, the. So, I mean, there was, I don't think there's anything quite comparable in the East Coast uh, world of academic music. So, I was already, I'm coming a long way to your question. Oh, no, no, I mean, and take the long way. Okay. I mean, it's a long way around. But then the other things what were happening was that I ended up working with Chowning and with Ligeti. And, you know, Ligeti, he, he had this completely ambivalent attitude in this way. I mean, it was, it was right out there. I studied, getting interested in his music before there was a movie called 2001. And when there was a movie called 2001, there was a recording that was issued very shortly after with excerpts from the film music. I didn't notice that Ligeti banned that from happening, even though he protested that the music was stolen from him to use in the movie, and that's actually true. But thereafter, you know, he had a very ambivalent attitude toward that. Because he saw how it benefited him. Well, yeah, he made money. I mean, let's let's put yeah, it out there. He 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 wasn't a he was not a wealthy person, and he and making money in music was a real question for him. In fact, when he after I studied with him at Stanford, he and he we in fact talked about what it was going to be like for him if he accepted the position, which he later took in Hamburg at the Hochschule. He was concerned about supporting himself. Uh, and was concerned about with his young son, Lucas was very young at that time, how do you pay for this? 
Now, I, I don't think Ligeti was a particularly, uh, uh, you know, he wasn't a greedy guy in this way, but he didn't, you know, he, he personally, I think, uh, didn't completely shy from the concept that, that music could go out there and make money. I mean, it wasn't an anathema to him that it made money. And nor, it wasn't like compromised by doing so. I think his, his sense of compromising came in a different way. And his, his growth as an artist and transition as an artist is an interesting subject, which we could talk about for a long time. But he, he was more anxious that he would be judged not sufficiently avant-garde when I first met him. That was a real anxiety that he had. Wait, because of his place because in of the his, marketplace? Well, no, because of his previous music in Hungary, which was folkloristic and written in some sense for the state. Okay. And he was worried that that music would be the music by which he would be judged, which he didn't hold very dear or very highly. And he was very anxious about his associations with folkloristic music. So it was a, it's a kind of different anxiety. It wasn't so much a commercial anxiety as it was a stylistic anxiety that troubled him. I mean, but I mean, things change. I don't want to make it seem as though that was a static situation. He was changing and I was changing. And so, as I was saying, so I was with Chowning, I was with Ligeti, I, I got to know Terry Riley, I was listening to all sorts of music that didn't involve itself in that dichotomy, which was so, which was, had risen so high in the minds and hearts of some of my European colleagues about separating music from its commercial uh, root in any way that it should exist in a pure space or even further that it should exist insofar as an audience liked it you could be assured that it was a compromise of some kind and it's so ridiculous to think that there can exist a thing as like a pure space in the first place. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And of course, you know, since I I had a Fulbright and I went to study in Vienna, even before I studied with Ligeti. So I lived in Austria for a year and I could see that there was a coterie of of experts. Again, here's some scare quotes for you who worked for the radio stations or for the government. And they were the ones who chose what music was played or not played. It wasn't as though this was a free open space. You had to please these people. You had to make sure that their chimes were rung in order to get going. And I, I, I knew them by name. I knew who they were. I knew I could see composers orienting their own output to satisfy the needs and demands of those radio station directors and, and conductors who were at, ran the ensembles. Uh, you know, they were not free of that kind of influence. Absolutely. But, you know, Austria being a backwater was interesting, too, because Austria, I don't know, today it's probably not so much so, but when I was there in, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was considered, you know, kind of a provincial place but it had its own avant-garde and its own avant-garde interestingly enough was very much against the high culture visions of their northern comrades in france and germany how did that manifest itself well let me give you an example of that one of the people i got to know there there are two very interesting people which your european listeners will know much better than the, the americans will know one was heinz Karl gruber the creator of frankenstein you know the the opera Frankenstein. Okay, yeah, no, I don't know that opera. Okay, but I, well, I know you know, he's a he was a student of Gottfried von Einem, as I was during that year, because Ligeti wasn't there. The whole other story, which I've told many times in other places, and he wrote this kind of funny, Kurt Weill like opera based on Frankenstein. It's a wild thing in which he performs the the kind of chanteuse role, 
And there was another guy who was working there at that time named Wilhelm Zobel, who was probably one of my closest comrades there. He was a very left-wing kind of guy. Uh, we hung out a lot together. He was totally uh, into the kind of more, not the Marxist tradition of the Frankfurt School, but the kind of Kurt Weill and Brechtian Marxist tradition of like music that wasn't stupid, is what he would put it, you know, music that was against stupidity. In any case, uh, Dieter Kaufmann was another person I knew, and he, he was very much involved in the day-to-day politics of a very reactionary kind of uh, provincial government in, the, in, in Kärnten and the, the, that province of Austria, and on and on. And uh, Otto Zikan, I mean, there was a whole Viennese bohemian group that was completely not in, involved in that. But I could see that European model. So I know, I mean, I know from my own experience. And then I must say, I saw it again very clearly, and I was kind of shocked how, how violently clear it was. In, in, and I always managed to forget these things, but one was this confrontation, which I've written about for the New York Times, where Luigi Nono criticized me, which you may have seen that in the Times. So. I saw that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was... But people cool. may not have, they, can you just... Glissover well, what quick. it was was it was during the Prague, uh, the last days of the of an independent Czechoslovakia under Dubček. Dubček had been overthrown, and Soviet forces were in the streets of Prague with tanks and soldiers. But uh, they hadn't completely closed down all the artistic elements that they were uh, that the Dubček regime had gotten going. And in, in the second and final year of the International Tribune of Composers, um, I was still a student in Vienna at the time. Was invited to come. And uh, Nono was there, and I had never met Nono. I knew something about him, and this story takes too long to tell. But in any case, it was about Nono thought everything that I was writing, because we, we had to present our music, and then we were supposed to you know, talk about our music and present it. But no, after I finished Nono, he insisted on talking about my music, which was not what the, was supposed to happen. Yeah. And he just tore it to shreds. He thought it was... Um, it wasn't radical. It was reactionary. Uh, it was not music of the people. It has a fo- it had a folk song in it, and the folk song wasn't a folk song of industrial workers. It was a folk song of the rural uh, peasantry, and the rural peasantry is ipso facto a conservative social force, and therefore, using any of their music could only be a reactionary thing to do. And um, oh, it went on and on, and it was a it was a very striking moment because I was very. I mean, I was involved with many demonstrations. I was nearly arrested several times. I, I remained very left. I'm still very left today. And I, I, I was startled to be taken to task in this way. And I don't even understand to this day why Nono, in this environment where there were Soviet troops in the streets and people were under a lot of stress in this very regressive kind of uh, authoritarianism that he would have taken a position that was so offensive to the people who were running this thing, who were the last um, progressives left in, 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 in Czechoslovakia, he deeply offended them uh, by doing this. And they were horrified. They all left. They walked out. And, really? Yeah, they walked out. Why do you think he chose you? I think I'll never really know. I mean, the way it was set up was peculiar. Um, and again, I've written about this, so people, if people want to read this, you can see this I'll, online. I'll link to it. In you can link thing. to yeah, it. You yeah. can see this online. But I'll never really know. I think, you know, Nono had a very much a, a, a kind of blanket hatred of Americans during that time because of the war in Vietnam. And he may have assumed that any American who came 
as, at the invitation of that of that check Singh was some in some way compromised in that way. That's he, what my guess would have been. Yeah, he probably thought that, but he not, didn't take the time to find out either. That's also clearly true. You know, he he played a piece after my piece called uh, "Non Consumiamo Marx," translated meaning "One Cannot Consume Marx," which consisted of street recordings of the Paris student uprisings at such a loud roar that and he he took over the the amplification equipment he pushed the guy off the the, the equipment who the tone uh, light meister he would push them away and he took over and he turned it up so loud that people left in droves and by the end there was only three people left there me and nono and uh, tone meister uh, listening to this music which was really i mean you couldn't it was just very it was really noise except that periodically you could hear people chanting you know ho 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 chi Minh or mao mao Zedong. You know, it was meant to be a provocation, and it certainly did provoke. I stayed to the end because even though my Czech friends at the time tried to pull me out of there. It, this is what drives me because I feel like that vestiges of that attitude are still there oh, sure. for me. And, um, sure. like, how do you react to those? Th- like, what, what good did that do? Well, I mean, at that time, this is, we're talking I mean, about. Pub- and, and, and as far as the sense of like public service. You know, you oh, or, well, or like, okay. what are you doing for audience members? What are you doing yeah. for people? If you're just you, yes, you made a statement, but you've given, you've convinced nobody. Either either you were already convinced of it, and you're like, yes, I agree, or you've taken people who might have been convincible if you had approached them in a different way, and you've completely turned them off to the idea and confirmed all the negative things about what they originally thought about you. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, if without going into again too much level of detail on this. From my point of view, when it happened, just speaking first for myself, then I'll expand it outward. But I had never heard this point of view expressed quite in that way before. Uh, I actually, that was new to me. And I was startled and amazed. And he did his whole, by the way, he did his entire presentation in German. Uh, We could, there were two languages that were used in the, in the conference. One was English and one was German. And people went back and forth. And by this time I'd lived in Vienna for a year. So my German was quite good. And, I understood everything he was saying, but you know the Czechs weren't that fond of hearing of being lectured to in German from their previous experiences. This was like grotesque to them, and so from the standpoint, I listened and I wanted to understand why he would have said such a thing or what he was trying to say. My Czech friends who brought me one was a guy who was who I stayed with who was the. Uh, the librarian of the city of Prague, the music librarian of the city of Prague. And he was desperately trying to save materials which had been neglected over these years of poverty in Czechoslovakia. Things were just lying around parts of Haydn symphonies and Mozart, uh, you know, cantatas that nobody had ever seen, which he couldn't take care of. Anyway, he was a lovely guy, Hanush Krupka, or Jan Krupka, as he would have been known. And the composer Elena Petrova, who was a, his partner at the time, they really wanted me to leave. Then they left because they were so offended and so angry, made so angry. But from my point of view, I just wanted to listen to this. I, I thought, wow, this is this is an incredible story. One of many incredible things that happened in Prague the time I was there for that week. But for the rest of the people, it drove them away. I, as you say, no one was persuaded by this, for sure. It was intended to provoke, and it did provoke, but... It, I can't imagine, I'd have to think to myself, well, what would be the strategy here? You know, like, did Nono consider when it was all over and there was just he and I and this guy named uh, uh, Folk Orca 
left there, the Tonemeister? Did he consider that he had succeeded in some way? I mean, I was trying to understand what he was trying to do. I can't imagine why he would have thought that was a success, but maybe he did. I mean, even now, I'll never know. And I don't really even understand. I don't understand how it happened that I was placed next to last in the conference and he was last. It seemed a little bit stagey now when I look back, like they worked it Oh, out. they set you up? I think they set me up, yeah. yeah. Well, they, what they did earlier, for example, just so you should know, I mean, there was tremendous pressure being exerted on these people to not have... Carol Husa's string quartet played. It was at the, Carol Husa was supposed to come to this event when it was first started out. Oh yeah, because he's from, he's Czech. He's Czech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but he had written music for Prague already, which was a protest against the Soviet occupation. So by the time this thing came to pass, he was disinvited as a person. He couldn't attend. And there was a lot of pressure being put on the organizers to cancel his piece. And they, they didn't. The place was politicized to a degree that was just almost unbelievable and there was clearly struggles going on behind the scenes that i don't i never knew and I, someday perhaps someone will explain between the people probably who wanted to completely crush this thing the second international or called second national free tribune of composers and those people who were hoping to continue the dubcek prague spring attitude what position nono had vis-a-vis that that thing i really don't know and I'd, hes- I'd hesitate to speculate, except that considering what actually happened, I, my conclusion in part is, or my suspicion is, that he thought of himself as criticizing Dubček from the left. And he was prepared to associate himself with the repression of that movement, even if it meant sticking with the Soviet Union and their occupying Warsaw Pact troops. I suspect that. I can't say that for sure, but I, I can't understand any other reason. I, it's hard for me to understand any other reason for why things happen the way they happen. How does this affect your internal logic and thinking after this event? <laughs> like, and d- does it, something like that, doesn't it kind of like force you to filter it down into notes on the page? Well, uh, you know, I became, I, I think over, I mean, I was still educating myself. After all, you know, this happened to me when I was 23. Oh, yeah, that's right. I always forget so I that. So I was very yeah. young. And uh, I came back to California to finish my degree at Stanford. I studied with, with Chowning and Ligeti. And I got to know Cornelius Cardew, of all people. And uh, I, I, a few years later, I, I was in Rome for the year with the Rome Prize. And I got to meet uh, Fred Jeffsky and Alvin Curran and some of those people. I had myself staged at Stanford during that intervening period between 72 and 75. I did a, a performance of uh, Der Jahrsager, the great Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brecht, little opera for children, which is a, quite a remarkable thing, and uh, other pieces by Kurt Weill. And I concluded my directorship of the New Music Ensemble at Stanford in the spring of 1975 by doing... Uh, Die Sieben Todsünden des Kleinbergers, The Seven Deadly Sins of the Petty Bourgeoisie by Brecht and Weil. And I had been very active in the anti-war movement, so I, I didn't feel my own credentials in some ways have been distressed by this, but I began to feel that I had to really do some more study to understand the dichotomy between a kind of uh, theoretical leftism as espoused by Adorno and the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno, and others of that tradition, and the more practically oriented Brecht, Eisler, 
you know, let's do the music, let's do the theater, let's work with the workers, let's do this. And doesn't one work better than the other, honestly? Like, <laughs> well, you know, it, isn't, isn't, <laughs> isn't, isn't the latter a more effective piece of art to convince people of something? Well, you know, my experience also, uh, you know, this is, I know you intended in some ways that these interviews should be uh, personal in this way. And, and I will tell you now a more personal story. Uh, yeah. In, in, yeah, I think so, to answer your question short, but then I'll give you more explanation. Yes, I definitely think that if you are really serious about organizing people to resist tyranny or authoritarianism or to struggle against exploitation, if that is one of your goals as an artist, there are better ways to do it than there are some ways that are more that, that are better than other ways to do it. Let's put it that way. And I saw what I felt to be a really brilliant example of this when I was a graduate student at Stanford in the spring of 1969, before I left to go to Vienna, I was one of the students who occupied the Applied Electronics Building at Stanford, where there was secret war research going on. And um, every day in that building, and I was a very peripheral figure here. Remember, I'm a, I'm a composer. I'm not a politician of that you know, organizing sense, but I was there and we would put out a newsletter. We would publish every day the secret war research papers that we found in the building. And then finally the police threw us out. They, we, you know, the, the university got us in a lot of trouble. But, but by that time, there was a, such a stink made about this that Stanford had to pass rules from that time on about secret research. What kind of secret research could the university be involved with? Now, I say that because during that very same time, students put on a performance of uh, the Peter Weiss play Marat Saad, uh, or the persecution and assassination of uh, Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. It's often combined into a single two-word title, Marat Saad. And they did this work in, in the church at at Stanford and Memorial Church. And, uh, you know, I must say that was a life-changing experience because Peter Weiss took on the whole question of what kind of politics and change could actually occur in a revolutionary situation or a radical situation. And the music for that was like folk music or pop music. It wasn't, you know, there was people sang it, you know, it was, it wasn't broadcast to you. It, it called to you almost to join in with it. And um, that can, that that's a part of the tradition that, that has never left me. And it goes back much further. I mean, I grew up in, a, in a, a cooperative kind of socialistic housing project in the Bronx. And, um, you know, Pete Seeger was an early hero. And, and these kinds of things are part of my life. And making music of this sort, in which music acts as a community binder for progressive reasons, is is what I've always felt to be persuasive and convincing i've seen it work the other i think i mean it worked for you it worked for me and i think it works yeah i mean i wouldn't go i mean i i do think that there's no reason to restrict no-nos or anybody else's desire to experiment with noise or uh, radical ways of processing uh, sonic information I, i i don't i'm not calling for that or suggesting that in any way and um, I think that's that's sometimes misunderstood in these arguments. All I'm saying is that from a practical point of view, if you want if you want your music 
to work as a community-binding progressive force, that's not the way to do it, I don't think. I was much more impressed with other people doing it. But, you know, Dan, look, we haven't really, you know, I'm a part of the 68 world, and uh, we really didn't change. We didn't uh, completely succeed. I mean, we didn't fail utterly, but we didn't succeed either. So there's some things that we failed in because they were utopian and they probably deserved to fail. But there's other things that we did which succeeded and which for which we probably didn't get quite enough credit, but which we do deserve credit. I mean, it's hard to imagine this, but we actually helped stop the war in Vietnam. The war in Vietnam would have not ended without this great social movement that I was involved with and I'm proud to have been involved with. The, the integration of the, of the society in the U.S. and the end of Jim Crow uh, kind of segregation in the South would not have ended without people of my generation actively putting their bodies on the line. These can be overlooked now, but they were tremendous accomplishments at the time. Richard Nixon was brought down, who was one of the, one of the creepiest, cruelest, worst, well, you know, it's hard to, I mean, there's a big contest for the worst since then too, so I don't know who's <laughs> the worst, but he was certainly in my day one of the worst. And we brought him down because we forced him to engage in conduct so egregious and so illegal that he had to be impeached in the end or he would have, you know, he would have been out of a job and he had to be out of a job. So there's many things that we did and the women's movement and so forth and so on and many things that that changed as a result of our activities. But there, there is, I think, in any social movement, there's always portions of that social movement that are so utopian that they can do nothing other than fail. Whether that is a badge of honor or not, I don't think I'm with that. Yeah. And I it's, I mean, that. the question is, it's also like, where would we be now without that push towards that area? Yeah. Right? You don't we'd want probably, to really we'd, know. Yeah. We'd probably be miles and miles farther to the right than we were now. There's which, no question. Yeah. There's yeah. no question. There's no so, question that even that, that, that Obama and the medical care that just has passed in the U.S. that without the, those earlier struggles, forget it. It's yeah. not possible. Yeah, no, I'm not ashamed of that, and I don't mean to give that impression. I guess I, 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 ju I do want to leave an open space for uh, imaginative uh, thinking that with which I do not agree. Let's put it that way, uh, as a practical matter. I think it would be becoming more like my enemies to close that down. Mm -hmm. You know, and yeah. I don't want to do that. From a musical point of view, you know, there's. Uh, you know, my music has been more heterogeneous than most people really understand, I think, to the extent that anybody really cares about it. It has always had these complex elements of simple folk-like materials and very abstract materials combined in some complex way, and sometimes not even, not even so complexly. In fact, the piece that Nono objected to was a piece that used at most advanced computer music that it had ever really been written and actually John Chowning pointed out to me just a few months ago that that actually was the very first composition to use frequency modulation as a, as a part of the composition but there's no way he wasn't interested in that though i mean no he, no he no he, any no. type of internal sophistication was like he just wasn't you know no he just he, wasn't interested in no that. he heard a, a scottish folk song sung in a loop, and that killed it. He's right like, there. "Great, that's the enemy I need right now." That is yeah. the that was the target, and he hit it with yeah. a, with a big gun. I mean, you know, that was my experience when I lived in Berlin too. Honestly, but by that time I was grown up enough to know better. So, and that was in two thousand and one. I I was well aware that for some people, the sound of a major triad, you know, that would be the end of the piece. You might as well 
kill the guy right away. You know, you didn't have to listen anymore. And I think this a priori, this extreme a priori judgmental listening uh, has been a real downfall for our profession. I mean, I think it's it degrades, I think, what musicians actually can do and can be. And I think the world is full of music. You know, some of my students have gone out and done, you know, wonderful music that, that, that doesn't fit any of those criteria that these people want. And so I, I do think that that is great. I mean, just from my personal point of view, I like I've tried to incorporate some of these things back into my music since I've been there as a reaction to like me again, like seeing like a little bit of the dark side of the way that stuff is made. I, you know, I haven't been lambasted and outcasted in, in, in any way. I think that is breaking down a little bit. People I agree. And I, I think even when I, when I, when I was in Berlin in 2000, 2001. Listen to Sydney's music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sydney, uh, yeah, Sydney was, had been an outlier for a while, but there was, I felt in the, some of these underground scenes that the younger people were doing, there was already a big breakthrough. And I thought that, I was very struck, uh, I've heard now several times in different occasions, uh, music of, of Heiner Goebbels, who, who wouldn't, he, he wouldn't exist without that break. And I find that music very interesting and uh, worth attending to. So, yeah, I think it's breaking down. But you still find uh, occasionally folks at the top, sitting on top of the power structures and in, in places where the government controls virtually all the support for the arts. That's a, tr- that's a trouble. That's a problem. And it remains a problem. It's a trouble for, I mean, I go to Australia. Look, Australia has a, has virtually no private independent, very little anyway, independent initiative for musicians and artists to work on their own or achieve support outside of the governmental sponsorship of like the Australia Council or these other things. And mostly, you know, everybody tries with goodwill to scatter the crumbs and cast the net widely, but it's still mostly in the hands of small groups of people who, who exercise complete dictatorial power and that's not democracy and if there's anything that i want to stand for it's actually democratic art yeah it affects people's conditioning in ways they don't even understand if you grow up within that oh there's no question that's what drives me yeah that's what drives me crazy about it yeah, yeah. it's not it's thoughtless you know when i taught i was the bartok um i was the at the bartok festival in sambate in hungary i was the composer in residence for that I was struck by, there were students studying with me from all over the world, and there was a great deal of variety among a lot of different students, but there was a certain core group of students, mostly I would have to say central from Central Europe, who were completely unreachable by any other music than the narrowest possible version of what they were doing. At first, I couldn't understand. How given, old were they? They were in their 20s. Isn't that a sign of immaturity, though? Do you well, think they'll grow out of that? Yeah, but I, I'm not sure that they will because, uh, and I'll tell you why, because it was very clear to me then that these young people were responding to exactly what you said. Their whole trajectory of career depended on their falling into the slot that the the local radio station or the local uh, cultural council had set up for them. Any variation from that, and they knew they would be identified as an outlaw, and they would not get the grants or the performances that they wanted to have. The players wouldn't look at the music. They would, they would be because there was no possible initiative from below. The initiative from, was always, you know, controlled by what was available at the top. But then the, the, it gets a point where you become aware, more aware of that social pressure that's happening. That's what I mean by sign of maturity, and then you can then you can make a decision. <laughs> 
And of course, there are going to be people who fall into that slot and people that say, whatever it takes, I might be completely unknown, but eventually, but I need to not do that. You know? Yeah, I mean, one would hope. I, I actually, what, what may not be obvious from what I've just said is that I'm offering these folks a little bit of a fig leaf by saying, I don't blame them because the way they understand the world necessitates that they act that way. Yeah, and you popped They're, they're into buying the world. a ticket to nowhere if they would listen to me. I, I began very clearly, you know, when I started talking about Charles Ives and the concept of a music that was permeable by, by sources outside of a narrow, you know, aesthetically conceived space that other, other things could happen in a piece of music. It was clear that if their music had become infected by it, at least from their point of view, they had no future in their home countries. There was nothing they they would never make a living. They would never survive. Were you saying that just to feel responsible as an adult? Like, listen, this is the path and these are the consequences, but it's possible, but it's just, you're not going to be able to like, I didn't say that to them. I didn't say that. They knew it is what I'm trying to say is they knew in advance. I didn't tell them that. I learned it. I began to see why they were so stubborn and why they had dug in their heels and why, in fact, some of them would never change is because their meal ticket would be punched, do not enter, you know, if they, if they strayed too far away. And I'm aware also that in the commercial marketplace, that could be said in very much the same way. Oh, yeah. So it is not as though one, one side of this is completely without sin. There's nobody who can cast the first stone here. I mean, the arts aren't, in, in effect, dependent on societies that they live in. There's no, there's no escaping that. They have to be. They should be. I don't even see anything wrong with that. But when you start developing an ideology around that dependence that says, that's good that we do what you tell us to do, or that's good that we never stray from the, the Hollywood happy ending model of a, of a film, or that's good. As soon as you start making, you know, you, you make a kind of a moral case or an ideological case for it, then you're in trouble, I think. Then the society's in trouble. You never grow. You never get great shows like Breaking Bad or something like that. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, or, or The Sopranos or yeah. uh, The Wire or some of these things have been quite, quite astonishing. Uh, and, you know, even, in, you know, the independent movie makers have done some remarkable things. I worked with, uh, as a composer with the great documentary filmmaker John Else. I worked with him on, on a film called The Day After Trinity about J. Rapid Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb which was a remarkable film. And then I worked with him on uh, a series of films about called Cadillac Desert, about water and the way the water is used in the world. And uh, people can do amazing things. They take a little risk, and sometimes it, it pays off. They took a risk with me as the composer, and uh, they took risks in what they had to say, some trenchant, pointed things. That was good. I liked it. So you're extremely socially aware of where you want your music to be placed in the in the greater context of, I know this sounds cheesy, for, but for lack of a better word, like society or something. I'm wondering how you feel about your specific type of patronage, which is where we're sitting right now at Yale University. Is there anything you have to reconcile? Is there any, do you think it fits perfectly into your into your vision of what you want well, to do? You know, I think, you know, it's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like hiding at Esterhazy is the way I see it. You know, I mean, this is my employer. In terms of my compositional output, they make no demands on me whatsoever. That oh, yeah, of course. One thing, yeah. one thing yeah, or yeah. another. On the other hand, they make demands on me that I, that I teach and that I act responsibly to my students. And it's my job. I mean, I have a job. It's called, I guess it's called a job. And, uh, 
I need to have a job. I don't, I, I don't have, I have no trust fund. I have no wealthy parents. I have a family. I have uh, grandkids and, you know, I'm just trying to get along just like everybody else. I, I'm, I'm not a romantic hero in that regard. All too often, you know, romantic heroes uh, have been the sons and daughters of the, of the, of the bourgeoisie who have been given money to go and, and uh, walk a lobster down the streets of Paris for a while uh, just to see how outlandish they can live. And I don't come from that family. My people are basically kind of working class people. And the idea of having a job and, and earning a living doesn't offend me or doesn't, I mean, it may be a constraint, but, uh, you know, Mark said that, uh, you know, we live in the realm of necessity. When, when the realm of freedom comes, uh, let me know. Uh, give me a call. It, it, we still live in the realm of necessity. We still have to work. We have to do stuff that people want to have done. Now, from the standpoint of a musical way, it's been great. Look, I mean, I get to know guys like you. I've had these incredible students. I've had wonderful musicians play my pieces. I've met incredible folks. And I mean, I, it's been a wonderful environment for me. It's been a, like, it, it is like Esterhazy. It's a place where I could experiment and try things. And I can't complain. It's a bit of a bubble, isn't it, though? Yeah. Oh, sure. And wow, um, sure. Uh, the way you describe things, like leftist ambitions and everything like that, do you think existing in a bubble, whether it be a necessity or not, does something to hold you back from that? And I don't, I don't mean you, Martin, but like I'm, I'm you know, I'm making this a, as as a general statement. It insulates you from outside forces in a way that I'm not always convinced that is good that people are insulated from that's true i mean and i think one of the things that you undoubtedly noticed when you were here is that insofar as this is an academic institution it's one of the least ivory tower like of these places that that's you true it's very yeah, yeah because we insist that our students go out and le learn and live in the world we don't keep them here very long and uh, this is not a sequestered place. I mean, it's kind of washed by the tidal seas of New York. You know, these musicians come in and out and events. You know, we're not closed off to the world. But yeah, it, it, you know, there are bubbles of every kind everywhere. I mean, show me the person who doesn't live in some kind of bubble and I'll, I'll show you a space alien, you know, who probably needs a bubble to breathe. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, there are different kinds of bubbles. This is one. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. But I don't know, you know, I, I, you know, when it's somebody like, it's funny about these kinds of things, isn't it? You have a guy like Stravinsky, if you go back to that, who criticized American composers saying, you know, they'll never account to anything because they all work in the university or they have to you know, work. He said, I didn't know he said he that. He did say that at I one point. I thought that was my thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, uh, you're, follow, I'm just kidding. You're yeah, a follower yeah, yeah, of Stravinsky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, he said that from at some point, and I think other European composers have said that about the American world. On the other hand, these are people who lived in state-supported systems or had rich aristocrats pay for them to do stuff. I mean, Stravinsky was not ashamed to take money from the Princess de Polignac and various other, you know, fancy people and was not ashamed to say that he thought that Mussolini was incredible and wonderful and... I mean, you know, these people lived in the world and they had to pay attention to the world as they saw it. And there were the world that, you know, Stravinsky wanted, he, he was not ashamed to, can we say that he lived in a bubble because he, you know, the, the pieces from the Serenade en La, for example, the four piano pieces, they're all written to be three or four minutes long because that's the size of a 78 
RPM record. He knew it couldn't be longer and it shouldn't be shorter. So he wrote four little piano pieces to be played. Why did he do that? He did it to make some money to, I mean, you know, the idea of this, that there's some sort of purity out there. I don't buy it. Not for anybody. Yeah. So if I'm not pure, yeah. that's true. Yeah. And that's, I mean, exactly. So in a certain way, you have to please the hand that feeds you. There's no right? question. And it might, it might be a hand with a 78 record on it. And it then, might be. Or it might, or it might be a university and that, that affects the output somehow. It does. So how has it affected your, has it affected your output? Well, I'm how sure. Has it affected I mean, your uh, output? Probably I have to leave it to other people to say, but let, you know, let's take, let's take the good side, for example. Okay. I got to work. Uh, on the Blake material with Harold Bloom, one of the great experts on William Blake. That's how it affected me in one way. I got to uh, show my Caprichos and Faticos piece based on Goya. Where did that come from? Well, my own reading, but I got the chance to talk to people, experts in Spanish art and the art of Goya to help me understand what that was about. And I've just, I'm now working on an opera, which is based on an adaptation of a Chekhov story with a great librettist and a, and a theater director who did, who works in the theater here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the upside. I think the downside is that, you know, how has it affected me? Well, I, I probably, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure I could say I would have had more time if I wasn't teaching guys like you and people like you to, to how to do stuff. Or maybe I wouldn't even have been so alert to the music of the past if I hadn't had to teach it from time to time. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. You know, there's, there's a great poem by Robert Frost. Um, uh, it's called The Road Not Taken. You know, it begins, two, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. He says, in other words, he says, look, you know, I had this, these alternatives in my life, and I, I had to choose one. And at the end of the poem, he says, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I chose the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And at first, when you read that, you think, well, that's because he was a super pioneer, and therefore it's made all the difference. But when you actually look at the poem, you realize that in the poem he says that all the roads were, in a sense, new and different. But we tell ourselves, when we look back, that we took the road less traveled by, that we took the right road, or we tell ourselves that we didn't. Hard to know. I can't say.